0: Good morning. It is good to be together this morning. Uh, if you are visiting today, uh, I'm Keith Clark, the discipleship minister. I'm not the one who normally preaches every week. Uh, Jared Robinson, who was up here earlier with his family doing the children's offering, is our, is our normal preacher. And uh, one of the great blessings that the leadership of this church has, has offered is an opportunity each summer for him to get a few weeks to, to take a break from this weekly rhythm of preaching and to have some time to prepare for the future. And as somebody who, who did the every week thing for 10 years or so, uh, I can tell you it feels like when you're driving down the interstate at 75 miles an hour and the, the, the lines just come past you so fast you can't even begin to count them. And so this chance to have a break is something I'm, I'm so thankful that he's able to have and I'm thankful for the chance to, uh, to share with you today. Next week, we're going to have a a great blessing as our student ministers uh, share with us, along with some of their students, the the great blessings of what has happened this summer in our student ministry, and I know you'll be blessed by that as well. And then in a couple weeks, uh, Jared will be back and uh, hopefully refreshed and ready ready to share with us some more. This morning, I want to invite you to to listen with me to some words of, of the Apostle Paul from 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to begin in verse 1. And we'll continue through verse 11. We don't need to write to you about the timing and dates, brothers and sisters. You know very well that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. When they are saying there is peace and security, at that time, sudden destruction will attack them. Like labor pains start with a pregnant woman, and they definitely won't escape. But you aren't in darkness, brothers and sisters, so the day won't catch you by surprise like a thief. All of you are children of light and children of the day. We don't belong to night or darkness. So then, let's not sleep like the others, but let's stay awake and stay sober. People who sleep, sleep at night, and people who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we belong to the day, let's stay sober, wearing faithfulness and love as a piece of armor that protects our body, and the hope of salvation as a helmet." God didn't intend for us to suffer his wrath, but rather to possess salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So continue encouraging each other and building each other up, just like you are doing already. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us hearts and lives that are open to the transforming work of your Spirit, who longs to help us live with Jesus day in and day out. We pray these things in his name, amen. I don't know about you, but uh, this text feels like a mess. It is a jumble of images. It's as if Paul sat down with a grab bag and decided to just pull one thing out after another. You've got the thief in the night. You've got the pregnant woman. You've got dark and light, day and night, asleep and awake, drunk and sober, a breastplate and a helmet. It's like he tried to throw everything up against the wall, except it didn't make a pretty picture. It's like a Picasso. And... and. and, it leaves us wondering, what in the world is, is going on here? What in the world is he trying to say? I think there's something here, but for us to be able to have a sense of it, maybe we need to have a sense of what's actually going on in the letter as a whole. And, and if we think about First Thessalonians, one of the things that that's, would strike us if we were to be able to read it all together this morning is it's, it's not exactly like many of the letters of Paul we're very familiar with. You now we get... 1 Corinthians, that that Paul has the need to correct a church that is filled with all kinds of misbehavior and all kinds of misunderstanding. Uh, We get a letter like Romans. It makes sense for Paul to tell members of the Roman church that they need to get their act together and stop allowing their ethnic identity uh, to prevent unity among them. But 1 Thessalonians is different. There doesn't seem to be much interest in correcting any problem. Instead, it's a letter largely about affirmation. Just three verses into the letter, the affirmation begins. Paul says to them, We remember your work that comes from faith, your effort that comes from love, and your perseverance that comes from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few verses later... He says this, you became imitators of the Lord when you accepted the message that came from the Holy Spirit with joy in spite of great suffering. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The message about the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. The news about your faithfulness to God has spread so that we don't even need to mention it. And Paul keeps on with words of affirmation and praise over and over and over again. There's so much good going on in this little congregation. And then when he finally gets to the end of of all of this praise, he says that when he thinks about them and when he relates to them, he, he cares for them like a nursing mother. He deals with them like a loving father. Now, if we spend much time reading Paul's letters, this parental language doesn't come as a surprise. We find it over and over and over again in his letters. But it's easy to sort of rush past it and think, oh, that's, that's neat. He loves these churches. But I think if we, if we run with this idea for just a minute, it'll help us understand what's going on in the letter and in our text for this morning. Think about if, if Paul's churches that he ministers to and he writes to are like children to him, then then maybe we can sort of assign these churches stereotypical roles like we assign sometimes children's stereotypical roles. That may not always be the best thing with our own kids, but these churches are long long gone, so it's safe to do this. So Corinth, the church in Corinth, you know what this church is going to be. It's the prodigal child, right? One bad decision after another. So many bad decisions that that when Paul thinks to, to sit down and write to them, he doesn't really even know where to begin to try to straighten them out. The church in Rome reminds me of an angsty teenager that doesn't quite know who he or she is. Torn apart on the inside, are we going to let the Jews lead the church? Are we going to let the Romans lead the church? How are we supposed to get along? We don't even know how to get along in, in our own hearts and minds. The church in Rome is like the angsty teenager. Well, We could go on and on with some of the other churches, but I think the main thing to think about this morning is the church in Thessalonica clearly fits the role of the compliant child. The church in Thessalonica is the golden boy, the golden girl among Paul's church children. They're they're the ones that, that every time they say please and thank you, every time they're given instructions, they say yes sir, yes ma'am. And, and they don't just say yes sir or yes ma'am. They actually do exactly what they've been instructed to do, exactly the way they've been instructed to do it. And as a parent of some young children, I can just assure you that doesn't always happen. Some of you can give me an amen on that. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in Paul's shoes trying to figure out how to parent all these child churches, I think my reaction would be to treat the Thessalonian church much like I've watched compliant children treated by parents. Basically, to let them do their thing. There are so many challenges, so many problems going on with the other child churches that if I can just kind of put the Thessalonian compliant child church out of mind and not have to worry about them and trust that they're generally going to do the right thing and they're generally going to turn out well, then I'm going to do it. I don't have time, I don't have energy to deal with all of the other struggles and still give this compliant child the attention they need, but, but not Paul. You see, First Thessalonians makes it clear that, that for Paul, turning out just fine ...isn't an option, it's not the, the goal, it's not an acceptable standard for him as a parent of this church. Because God's desire is more than just fine. God's desire for the Thessalonians is something far greater than, than merely staying out of trouble. God wants this church and the people in it to be active participants in God's kingdom... ...to, to experience the glory of living with Jesus... And so it simply won't do to settle for just fine, to settle for staying out of trouble. Paul's goal, he, he tells the Thessalonian Christians, is that they will be blameless in holiness, in the presence of God, when Jesus comes. And if, in fact, they are to, to reach that goal, if, in fact, they are to live into that vision, then, then Paul knows he can't make the mistake of giving all of his attention to the child churches that have some drama going on, he's got to make sure that he pays attention to this church, the Compliant Child Church. Because it's going to take effort and encouragement and support and sometimes a challenge or two for them to become everything God desires for them to be. If they're left to their own devices, sure, they may not cause much trouble... But there are patterns, there are, there, there, there are streamlines in their culture that will lead them to places that nobody will really be bothered by them. But they won't be able to become what God wants them to be. And in Thessalonica, there seem to be three basic approaches to life that they could end up falling into. The first we might call the, the pursuit of earthly peace and security. You see, in Thessalonica, there is a pervasive obsession with peace and security. It's a constant topic of conversation. There there is a sizable contingent of citizens and leaders of the citizens who believe that if they just double down on their military might, they will be able to ensure peace and security for all people all the time. There are other people who are convinced that To think that you can possibly guarantee peace and security all the time is to live in a fantasy world. The world is simply too unpredictable. And so rather than try to do the impossible, uh, they just kind of throw their hands up and decide that instead of pursuing earthly peace and security, they're going to pursue happiness, eat, drink, be merry, anything goes, anytime, all the time. Because who knows what tomorrow might bring? Might as well live it up now. And there's a third possibility, one that's especially appealing for folks in the Thessalonian church. Much like the second group, they've given up hope on ever truly attaining a guarantee of earthly peace and security. But they also have this aversion to eating and drinking and being merry. They they get a sense that that's not really a fulfilling life like it seems sometimes to be and so what they end up doing is they just withdraw from the world altogether we're not going to be a part of it we're not going to mess with it we're going to get to a place where we're safe from any harm we're safe from doing anything we shouldn't do and we're going to try our best to hold on tightly to the personal eternal life insurance policy that jesus gave us now any of these three options if they were to choose these would be looked upon as fine options. They're not causing trouble. They're not stirring up drama. And yet, for Paul, none of these three approaches can be reconciled with the life of Jesus. They can't be reconciled with the message of Jesus. I mean, if they, if they decide to throw in their lot with the violent authorities and pursue peace and security by any means necessary, how are they supposed to square that with Jesus? Jesus never took up a sword against anybody, and when one of his best friends, Peter, tried to take up a sword in his name, in his defense, Jesus rebuked him. And so that option is not an option if they're to be faithful to God's calling. And and then there's this idea of eating and drinking and being merry. And, well, Jesus, sure, he wasn't a stranger to a good time, but Jesus is very clear over and over and over again he didn't come to be served and shown a good time. He came to serve. And then there's this idea of withdrawing from the world. And if there's anything Jesus shows us throughout his ministry and his teachings, it's that he's calling his followers not to withdraw from the world but to engage the world, to enter the world on his behalf, to show the world his kind of love, the kind of love that transforms dangerous situations, the kind of love that chooses to serve even when it might be tempting to want to be served. And so when Paul looks at the scene in Thessalonica and surveys the landscape, and he recognizes that if this church doesn't get some guidance... This is where they're likely to end up in one of these three options. He knows that he has to make sure he does his best to try to guide them to another way of living and another way of being. He doesn't want them to settle for just being fine. And so this letter, this letter is written with the express purpose of calling them to a deeper kind of faith, a more mature kind of discipleship that that will transform them into people who are blameless in holiness, people who live with Jesus day in and day out. Which brings us back to the bizarre text that we read at the beginning of our time together. Now, maybe for the Thessalonians in their context, all of these images make a lot more sense than they do to us 2,000 years later, halfway around the world. But regardless, the images, I think, are not the focal point. I think what Paul's trying to do, like any parent with a child sometimes tries to do, is to use any possible means of teaching and explaining a concept that's hard to get. And all of this imagery is really aimed at the end of the text we read earlier today. Because where Paul ends up is with these words. Encourage each other and build each other up just like you are doing already. You see, I think what Paul knows is that as as great of a letter writer as he might be, as many powerful words as he might be able to offer to them... He's not always going to be around. He's not always going to be with them. He's not always going to be able to give them guidance. And in his absence, this church community is going to have to figure out how to keep pursuing God's vision without him. Encourage each other and build each other up just like you're doing already. And if he were to explain this further, I think he might say something like this. You're going to need to encourage each other because you will be tempted to think that someone or something can offer you earthly peace and security. Some politician, some superpower, some military, they won't be able to do it. And you're going to need to continue to encourage each other to remember that that is an elusive goal. It's not worth pursuing. And you're going to need to encourage each other because this idea of of living it up, of eating and drinking and being merry, it's going to be alluring. It's going to try to draw you in, but it's not fulfilling. And you're going to need to encourage one another, to remind each other, not to let that way of life get hold of you. It's not worth it. And, And you're also going to need to remind one another, When you're tempted to withdraw, when you're tempted to become isolated, when you're tempted to to sort of wall yourself off from the world, you're going to need to remind each other that Jesus calls you not to isolate yourselves, not to sequester yourselves, but to be in the world, loving and serving the world. You need to encourage each other and build each other up. To remind each other of what is possible when you're committed to partnership with God. God has great plans. But if you don't keep encouraging each other and building each other up, you're never going to be able to realize them. And as I I think about this text and I think about our church, I think that if Paul were here this morning... He would see a lot of similarities between the church at Thessalonica and the church here at Southern Hills. I think he would think back to all of the good things that have been accomplished through the years from 50 years ago until today. And I think he'd look and listen and he'd recognize all of the great things that are going on now. There is so much to affirm And yet I think Paul would also look out and recognize, just like he did with the Thessalonians, that there's still so much room for growth, so much more that God wants to do. And so I think he might say something like this to us. You know, you need to be aware, because your culture, it's not that different from the culture of the Thessalonian Christians In your society, just like theirs, there seems to be a pervasive obsession with peace and security. It's a constant topic of conversation. How can we guarantee that we don't get hurt? How can we guarantee that there's peace? How can we guarantee that nobody harms us? And and there are other people in your world who listen to that conversation and they think, What a waste of time. We just need to live it up, eat, drink, and be merry. And I can tell that there are also the same temptations that the Thessalonian Christians faced to withdraw, to isolate yourselves, to sequester yourselves and wall yourselves off from the world, to hold on to Jesus simply as a personal eternal life insurance policy. But that's not what God wants for you. And so I think Paul would say, listen, at, It's true that you can take any of these approaches and there wouldn't be many people at all who would criticize you. At least you're not causing trouble. At least you're not stirring up drama. But God wants something more for you than just to be uh, the, the compliant child that stays out of trouble. God wants you to be a church that grows into God's vision and is able to participate in all of God's plans So do you really want to settle for an anemic faith? I mean, God wants for you to be active participants in his kingdom, people who are living with Jesus day in and day out, and and as a result can be partners with him, partners in bringing a a sense of peace and security that is real and lasting, not, not temporary and elusive. God wants you to be people who join Jesus not in in trying to to bring about spectacular displays of power, but in engaging in humble acts of service that show God's love to the people around you. Now, that all may sound like a lot of work, and it may sound like a lofty goal, but, but God is willing to work in you and through you and with you. And I promise, if you will open yourselves up to his work, He will make this a reality. So continue encouraging each other and building each other up, reminding each other of what is possible when you're committed to partnership with God. I think that's something like what Paul might say. And what I want to say this morning is this. Brothers and sisters, there there is so much to be thankful for. That so many people who have come before us have done in this place for this community in the name of Jesus. And there is so much going on right now. We've seen a preview of the VBS. That's going to happen in a week and that will be a great blessing to us and to our neighborhood. We're going to take time in a little while in our shepherd's blessing to bless a couple significant efforts coming up. The, the middle schoolers who are going to be engaging in Mission ABI and serving in this community and doing some things even here to bless people around the world. We're going to take time to offer a prayer of blessing over the Kids Eat Free summer feeding program that's coming up. And all of that is is is. Good stuff that we should feel really good about. But but here's the concern. The concern is that, that if we're not careful, we begin to feel really good about what's been and what is. And we forget that God's dream goes beyond right now. That God's dream carries us into the future and that God's dream includes more ways of us growing and serving and becoming more faithful everyday disciples. And so my encouragement this morning is that you will encourage each other and build each other up. Encourage each other and build each other up. Encourage each other And build each other up. And as you do, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit will be at work in you, making you more like Jesus. So that you can live with Jesus, not just in this place for this hour, but everywhere you go. Whatever you're doing. And God will work in you and through you and with you to bring about more good than you can possibly begin to imagine. Let's pray together. God, we pray that we would be people who are constantly encouraging each other and building each other up, reminding each other of your calling for us, both individually and as a church. We are so thankful for all that you've done in the past through the many people who have come before us, and we're thankful for all that you're doing in the present, but we hold out those dreams and those hopes of yours for our future. And we pray, God, that you would help us to encourage each other and build each other up so that we can live into those hopes and dreams this week and next month and the year after each and every day of our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In just a second, our shepherds and their spouses are going to be out in our foyer. They are there to pray with you whether you are dealing with burdens, whether you are celebrating joys, they want to be able to share those with you. And so I want to invite you when we sing this final song, if you'd like to pray with one of them, to to go just outside those doors and find them so that they can join you in prayer. Let's stand and sing.